of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. He is the first, the last, the one who matters most. He is creator, ruling, sustainer of all. He holds it all together. He is the word of God, the hope for
of that, we can sing this next song. So let's stand together because we've gathered in this place and we're saying, Lord, this is our prayer this morning for you to, to uh, open up the heavens that we can see you this morning. We've waited for this day. We've gathered in your name, calling out to you. Jesus. 
above 10,000. And he is so much lovelier. And one day we're going to see how lovely our Lord Jesus Christ really is. But until that day, we can just continue to sing praises to him for all he does for us and all he will do in our lives each and every day. Let's continue to sing together. Let's just lift our hearts to him. Oh 
Let us pray. Gracious God, we know that your capacity to love is infinitely greater than our own. Indeed, you call us to love one another in truth and in action. We yearn to be active disciples so that our hearts truly abide with you. Use these gifts to increase our ability to be your followers. In the name of the one who laid down his life for us, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I want to be close, close to your side, where heaven is real and death is a lie. I want to hear voices of angels above. Singing as one, hallelujah, holy, holy, God almighty, the great I am, who is worthy, none beside thee, God almighty, the great I am.
thank you for the greatness that you do in our lives each and every day whenever we don't even realize it but Lord we call upon you this morning because you are the great I am the mountains shake before you and the demons run and flee so Lord just let us place our trust our hope in you each day we ask it in your name amen amen oh my goodness thank you Galen for Leading us to the throne of the Lord this morning. And all of y'all are still sitting. Holy cow, people. We need revival in this place. It's really, if you don't get fired up over words like that and all the things we've sung about this morning, about the power and the presence of the Lord. I'm telling you. That's what we're talking about today. Because we sing about, I want to be close, close to your side. I want to be near. I want to, I want to experience you in this awesome and mighty way. And friends, guess what? You can get close to God. You can be at the side of God. You can know that heaven is real. You can be empowered. You can experience all of that because the great I am desires a personal relationship with his people. And the, the verse that we consider today captures that desire. It demonstrates the desire. And I pray that it impacts you and your faith in a new way today. And our text is, for, is John chapter 1 verse 14. One verse. But even though it's just one verse, I want you to have your Bible open. We're going to look at some other texts as well. But have your Bible open because I think you're going to want to make some notes about certain key words in this powerful verse. I want us to read it together from the screen together. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. For some weeks now, we've been journeying through this prologue of John's gospel, and I hope that you've been enamored as I have with just the wonder of what John shares about the awesomeness of Jesus. I mean, these verses just pull us in and they want us to in, in have an exhilarating kind of faith. It's fun to preach on Jesus. It's powerful to preach on Jesus. And as we're going through this gospel, uh, focusing on Jesus can be, bring revival to a long-time re believer. 
It can bring salvation to someone who is lost. And it can give an extra boost to somebody who's already walking with the Lord. There's something about the name of Jesus. There's power. So far we've seen how Jesus was and he is the word of God. He was with God in the beginning. He is God. He created everything without him. Nothing was created that has been made. And he gives us life and he shines his light into a dark world. And this morning we encounter one verse that some have said is the sentence for which John wrote his entire gospel. And some have even said that it is the greatest single verse in the New Testament. This verse is so important because it makes the way for all the other verses of the New Testament. Because in this one verse, John takes the divinity of Jesus and he takes the humanity of Jesus and he brings them together in a statement that is jam-packed with biblical truth, amazing power, and life-changing consequences. Read it again together. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Notice two statements in the first part. The verb and the direct object. The Word became flesh and He made His dwelling among us. Those two verbs of which Jesus, the Word, is the subject are important because until this point, John has spoken about the word Jesus by using the verb was. Was. Remember, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And when we looked at those verses, we said that the impact of that verb is that he has all... There never was a time when Jesus wasn't wasing. He always was, right? He's always been, and we emphasize that. But now we have a point where John says, he became. There was a point where he made his dwelling among us. The eternal word, Jesus Christ, became what he had never been before. And then notice the next statement. We, now the different subject, we have seen his glory. Again, a point in time when something new was taking place. And so these three statements are very, very important. This morning, we're going to glean three truths from these texts, which are captured in the sermon title, not the one in your worship guide. I had to adjust it a little bit. But this sermon title, Jesus, like us, with us, and for us. So let's begin with the first truth. Jesus is like us. The word became flesh. The word became flesh. Jesus is like us. That's an amazing statement. It, it speaks of the incarnation of Jesus. Incarnation is a hundred dollar word that means in flesh. For God to become flesh would have jarred some of the readers of John's gospel. There were some, even in the early church, just a few decades removed from Jesus, 
who just couldn't get their mind wrapped around the idea that Jesus was both human and divine. And these Christians were dealing with a heresy known as Gnosticism. The Gnostics viewed the physical world as inherently evil and the spiritual world as inherently good. And so therefore, the inherently good, perfect, pure God could not mingle with daddy, dirty, nasty humanity. And so those who tried to to combine Christianity with Gnosticism ran into a big problem when they came to Jesus. How could someone with a material body, which was evil, at the same time be the son of God who is spiritual and good? And so they tried to explain it in different ways. There were, in the Gnostic group, a couple of two major groups. One was called the Docetics, which means to seem. And so the the Docetics said, well, since the divine Jesus couldn't take on flesh, he just seemed to be a man. The Docetics said that Jesus was really just a phantom. He was a phantom, just kind of here doing his thing. He wasn't a real man. He was the son of God in phantom form. Well, then there was another group known as the Serinthians. And the Serinthians said, okay, well, Jesus, he couldn't be both human and divine. So there must have been some point when the Christ spirit came upon the Jesus man and then left him. So he must have come when Jesus was baptized. The spirit came on him, boom, and like, possessed him and then sometime before Jesus got to the cross because that's way too bad for God to go through the spirit of Christ left Jesus well there's major problems with both of those and so here John says in one statement the word became flesh his statement does not mean that he ceased to be the word He continued to be every bit of God, but God was accommodating himself to the conditions of human existence apart from from sin. But at the same time, he didn't simply indwell a man. He became flesh. Thus, in one statement, John avows both the deity and the humanity of Christ. He answers the Docetic Gnostics by declaring that Jesus had a real body in flesh. He was not a phantom. And he dealt with the Serinthians by stating that Christ did not simply come upon a man. He became flesh. The word became flesh. About 30 years before John wrote these words, the apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. And he was writing against some of the same kind of things. And John used an early church hymn, or, or Paul used an early church hymn to communicate what We needed to know about Jesus. Philippians 2, you remember this statement? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Notice in that we have God and human. Very nature God, very nature man. God, the word became flesh. 
A few years later, Paul wrote to the Colossians the very words which the choir sang this morning. In Colossians chapter 1, 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. There's the divinity. But in verse 19, then we read, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Not part of his fullness, all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. We have the image of the invisible God united with the, all the fullness dwelling in him. The word became flesh. A few years later, the author of Hebrews began his sermonic letter focusing on the incarnation of Christ. In Hebrews 1, 1 and 3 we read, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken us to, to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Notice, through whom he made the heavens and the radiance of his glory was the exact representation of him. The word became flesh. 100% God became 100% man. The word became flesh. And with this statement, John and the other New Testament writers parted with all thought that had gone before them. The Greek world couldn't fathom it. God would never put on flesh. He must be a phantom or he must have just possessed somebody and then left. No, John says, he did put on flesh. He was a red-blooded man at the same time. He was God Almighty. He was God incarnate, God in flesh. But what does that mean for us? It means Jesus is like us. Yes, he's different in that he's also God, but he is like us. And that he lived as a hundred percent man. He grew hungry. He grew tired. He loved people. He dealt with people who didn't like him. Who abused him. Who used him. Who talked about him behind his back. He developed friendships. He was tempted in every way as we. Except he was without sin. So if nothing else. We know this. Because Jesus is like us. He understands us. You and I will never face anything that he does not understand. He's lived in our skin. He's walked on the dust of the earth. He understands. He is like us. He got down on our level. The word became flesh. But not only is Jesus like us, Jesus is with us. That next statement was he made his dwelling among us. The literal meaning is he pitched his tent among us. Now that suggests a, a temporary kind of dwelling, a tent, but in that day and time, it's coming from the Old Testament idea. It's one that it's the normal course of your life. I'm living among you. To get the full impact of this statement, we do have to go back to the Old Testament and remember that after Moses had led the people out of Egypt, they came to Mount Sinai and God delivered to Moses there the commands and laws that he was going to lead the nation of Israel with. And one of those commands was to erect a tabernacle, a worship tent, in order that God might dwell with his people. And the command comes in Exodus 25 verse 8 where God says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me 
and I will dwell among them. This was more than a place of worship. It was more than a memorial or a tribute to God. It was a place where God wanted to dwell among them. It was erected in the middle of the camp, in the very place where most nations would have erected the king's tent. But here this worship tent went in the middle, God's tent, in the middle of the camp, and all of the other tribes would be arranged around that tent. The Bible also tells us that when God met with Moses, he would descend in a cloud over that tent and meet with him. And it said that God spoke with Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. So John is saying here in that Jesus has made his dwelling among us, that God formerly manifested his presence among the people in the tent which Moses pitched. But now God himself has pitched his tent has taken up residence on earth in the word made flesh. He came to be one of us. He came to speak to every person face to face as a man speaks with his friends. And that is huge. Every other religion has a God who is distant. A God who needs appeasing. A God who doesn't get himself dirty with humanity. In every other religion, mankind has to figure out how to somehow appease God or somehow climb up to this God. But the one true God doesn't say that. The one true God comes down. He became flesh. He made his dwelling among us. Wow. He wanted to show us what life could be like with him right in the center of our life. And so he made his dwelling among us. He got right down in the middle of our business and pitched his tent. Do you grasp the intimacy of that? When you live with someone, you get to know someone. You might go to college and you meet a stranger who becomes your roommate. And you get to know that person very well, very fast. Sometimes you become friends for life. Sometimes you petition for another roommate the next semester. Well, what about when you get married and you move in together, which is the order it should be married, then move in together. But you move in together and you could have dated for 10 years, but you get to know all kind of interesting things after you move in together. Good things Quirky things, aggravating things, admirable things. When you live with somebody, you get to know them. But you're also there for them, aren't you? When you have a hard day, your roommate can encourage you. Your spouse will be there to listen. When you celebrate a victory, they're there, to, they're there as well. And so here's some great news for us. Because Jesus is with us, he knows us. He doesn't just understand us. He really knows us well. The creator of the universe knows you. He's not removed. He's right there in the center of the camp. He can talk with you face to face as he talked with Moses face to face. You are a friend of God just as Moses was a friend of God. His tent is right there with you. He's right there in the middle of your Business And when Jesus is in the middle of your business, that's a really good thing. 
But he's not just like us. He's not just with us. Jesus is for us. The next statement shifts kind of to us as the subject and John's people as the subject. He says, we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. The verb seen there is very important. It's, it's a word that is always used in the New Testament for actual physical sight. So John is not saying, oh, we've seen his glory in some kind of mystical, mental, spiritualized kind of way. No, he's saying we have seen his glory with our eyes, the real physical sight. It calls to mind uh, John's letter in 1 John 1, 1, which he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. Again, he's saying real, tangible, not a phantom, not something that came. He came into our world. He became flesh, the physical reality we've heard, seen, looked at, touched. The only senses not mentioned there are taste and smell. They couldn't very well taste Jesus, but they definitely could smell him. He was a man, and it's hot in Israel. But it doesn't fit the poetic flow of 1 John 1, 1 to say, and whose odor we smelled. So I guess John left that out. John says they physically saw Jesus. He was real. But he says they saw something important. They saw his glory. And what glory was it? It was the glory of the one and only. And what was that glory like? It was full of grace and truth. What's John getting at here? Well, again, we need to go back to the Old Testament to understand it. The word for glory here in the New Testament is doxa. But in the Old Testament, the word for glory was kabod. And I'm looking again. I did not spell it kebab. Okay, I was making sure of that. Kabod. Kabod means the beautiful, magnificent presence. Throughout the Old Testament, we come across specific times when kabod, the glory of God, shows up. Before God gave manna to his people, it says they looked toward the desert and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. Before God gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus 24, it says, And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. When the tabernacle had been built in Exodus 40 verse 34, it says, The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. When Solomon's temple was built in 1 Kings 8, it says the priests could not perform their duties because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. When Isaiah saw the Lord seated on his throne and the angels cried out in Isaiah 6, they were crying out, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. Now here is a statement to catch with all those references to mine and there are more. In the Old Testament, the glory of the Lord came at times when God was very close and doing something great. In the Old Testament, the glory of God came when God was very close and he was doing something great. 
When God was very close and doing something great, his glory settled in on his people. And here, John says in Jesus, we have seen his glory. In Jesus, God was very close and doing something great. But as good as that is, there's still more. John says, this glory is full of grace and truth. Now, what's that about? Well, Moses once asked God to show him his glory. The request came in Exodus 33, verse 18, where he says, show me your glory. Show me your kabod. And God agrees to do so. In Exodus 33, 19, the very next verse, he says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, Yahweh, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So, Make this connection. Moses had experienced the presence of God. He had experienced the glory. He would experienced the kabod. But he says, God, I want to see it for myself. And so God says, I'm going to do that. In Exodus 34, he does that. It says, God passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. So God reveals his glory to Moses. And that glory is graciousness compassion, slow to anger, forgiving, abounding in love, faithfulness, his beautiful, magnificent presence, his kabod, his goodness, mercy, faithfulness, love. As John says, his glory is full of grace and truth. And we have seen it. Make the connection. John says that in Jesus, he saw God's glory In Jesus, God was very close to doing something amazing and he was revealing his beautiful, amazing presence, all his goodness, full of grace and truth and he pitched his tent of glory right in our midst. Folks, because of his revelation, because we've seen the glory of God, Jesus is for us. His grace extends to us when we need it to forgive us of our sins. His love showers down upon us. His truth is there to proclaim how we might have salvation, how we might find victory in life. He is there. He is near doing something great, not impartial, but in all of his fullness. And because he is for us, we can be saved. No matter how sinful we may be, no matter how disconnected from God we may be, we can be saved. But yes, even no matter how good we think we are on our own, we can be saved. Don't miss this. Don't leave here today without meeting this amazing Jesus who is like us, who is with us, and who is for us. The Word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father. Full of grace and truth. This weekend, several of us men 
participated in survival man camp with our sons at Acadian Baptist Center in Eunice. And I enjoyed the time with my oldest son, Zachary, especially uh, bringing home Rebecca a special souvenir. Some of y'all saw that on Facebook. It's actually a chicken foot. Uh, the boys learn how to pluck and gut a chicken and cook it and survive. <clears throat> um, they couldn't kill a squirrel or anything because it's not squirrel season yet, so they did a chicken. Um, but in addition to the fun we had learning survival skills, I had a dynamic realization while there. Um, it slammed into me as I walked into the chapel at ABC camp Friday night. In the summer of 1987, exactly 30 years ago, I attended a summer camp there. I was 10 years old, and at that camp, God began letting me know that I need to be saved. First, he did it through a, a movie we watched on hell that scared me to death, and then he did it through a, a message that a preacher preached. And, and I went down and questioned, but I didn't make a decision that particular night. But I struggled and wrestled with that decision for the next couple of months. I knew I needed to be saved. I knew that even though I was a good church-going kid and went all the time, I could tell God was saying, that's not enough. You must trust me as your Lord and Savior. And so over the next month, I struggled and until finally in September, during a revival at my home church, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. The only record of my baptism, actually, I don't have a record of my baptism. I don't know when that happened, though I do remember it happening. The only record of my salvation and the date is a note my dad wrote in his Bible. And it actually, it's actually the only reason I know it was 1987. And I have daddy's Bible in my office. So this morning when I got to the office, I was like, when, when was that exactly in September? And I pulled out the Bible and I looked at the note. And you can pull it up the next slide, Fred. Here's the next slide, sorry. Stewart's Public Profession, First Baptist Church, LeCount, Revival, Brother Joe Kite, Pastor Parkview Baptist Church, Alexandria, 9-15-87. Friday night was September 15th. And I went, wow. On the 30th, I mean, today's my 41st birthday, but my spiritual birthday was Friday 30 years old as a believer in Christ. And the Lord allowed me to go back to the very place where it started the stirring. I can't tell you how that just kind of shook me. And how it made me grateful. Especially as we're looking at this passage today because I thought, you know, how grateful I am. Thank you, Jesus, for becoming flesh to me. Thank you, Jesus, for pitching your tent in the midst of my 10-year-old business. And thank you, Jesus, for showing me your glory so that now I can join John, that verse 14 is my testimony as well. Because as a 10-year-old, the Word became flesh. It dwelt among me, and I beheld His glory. The Word gets really real when it really touches you. And so I hope that you have met Jesus today. But if you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm encouraging you that today would be that day. Today would be the day when you would realize that Jesus 
became flesh for you. He died on the cross for you. He wants a relationship with you. And you need him no matter how good you are on your own, if you're a good little church kid like I was, or if you're the most worthless, reprobate, sinful person there ever was. We all need Jesus. And we all need salvation. And so I encourage you today to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can do that simply by confessing your, your faith in him, saying, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I need you in the middle of my life. And I trust you to be my savior. There's not magic words. There's not magic hoops to jump through. If a 10-year-old boy can do it, a 15-year-old, a 40-year-old, a 70-year-old, a 90-year-old can do it. Won't you trust Jesus today? Let's pray together. Father God, we give you this time and we pray, Holy Spirit, that we will not be in a hurry. There's 15 minutes before Sunday school starts and I pray, Lord, that you would just help us to focus on you. And Lord, for those of us who are believers this morning, that we would spend this time in prayer and worship for those who are not. And I ask God that right now would be a time of salvation for people in this service. Lord, that as we've seen your wonder and your glory and what you did for us, that today would be the day of salvation. So Holy Spirit, as you're pricking hearts now, I pray that as you're doing that, those individuals that you're speaking to would, would ask you to be a part of their lives. That they'd turn over control to you and they'd stop trying to be their own boss. But they'd allow you to be the Lord of their life. That they, try to, that they would stop trying to pay for their sins on their own by whatever they're trying to do, but that they would allow you to be their Savior and to cover those sins by your blood. And then, God, I pray that you give them the courage to step out. Because I remember the courage I needed as a 10-year-old. And sometimes 50-year-olds need the same courage that a 10-year-old needs. And so, Lord, I pray that you give courage to step out and to make that public profession of faith that we might rejoice and that there might be some in this room who get to celebrate September 17th, 2017 as their spiritual birthday. So God, we give you this time and we ask for you to move. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As we stand and sing this song of worship, may you say yes to the Lord today.